Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters. Here, we're dedicated to driving a continued conversation about the importance of public presence in an online space. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This season, we're refocusing on the value of humanist perspective in the digital age and slowing down a bit to foster a culture of care and listening. On each new episode, we follow Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters, as he takes us somewhere new to meet arts and letters students and faculty where they work. Today's episode features Dr. Paula Winky in her office in Wells Hall. She's an associate professor of linguistics here at MSU and conducts research on foreign and second language testing. Here's Paula and Chris. Well, it's good to see you, Paula. I'm here with Paula Winky. It's good to see you, too. Thanks for coming to my office. Well, let's talk about this office. Mm -hmm. So we like one of the things we're talking about in, in this podcast is kind of be with scholars in the spaces that oh, in which they work. So yeah. tell me a little bit about the space. Yeah, so this is my office in Wells Hall. So I'm just above the teaching wing, and um, all the faculty are here. And I spend a lot of time in this office, um, mainly because all my books and my resources are, her are here. And I do a lot of editing work, and I do that best on multiple monitors. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> and uh, so this, the whole setup is here, and I, I don't live very far away. Okay. So I walk to, to work, and um, that's the nice thing about East Lansing is it's a small community, and uh, it just works better to keep everything in one space. Yeah, that's so, nice. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that you, we have a nice covering for, the, for bicycles, so you ride your bike into Yes, work. yes. So I, I ride my bike into work. So does my husband. He also works on campus. And my kids, they live in East Lansing, where all the public schools are within walking distance right. from our house. So it's, it's an awesome place for families. That's yeah. great. Mm -hmm. That's great. And we were just commenting on the green roof that you're overlooking here in Wells Hall. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the the oh, energy saving aspects of the building and yep. then over mm -hmm. that we see the the big Spartan Stadium. That's right. So we often say that uh, you shouldn't come in on football Saturdays, but actually it's a good time to come in because <laughs> the campus is just raucous. It's great. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fun place to work. It absolutely mm -hmm. is. But, but you know, getting work done here, I'm sure, on Saturday, football Saturday is a little tough. Yeah, yeah. So you mm -hmm. tend to want, in terms of your own work practice, you, you come into the office and, and you do most of your work here. You, do you have an office at home, too? Right. I have, well, I take a laptop home sometimes, mm -hmm. but no, I don't have a home office. This is the primary place where I do the work and it's where I also meet with graduate students. It's why I have a table in the middle of the room because yeah. we do a lot of side-by-side -side work mm -hmm. where we have projects that we're working on and the research assistants will be working on one aspect of it and I'll be working on the other and we block our hours so that um, for me effectively it doubles my time to yeah. have a student working along uh, on the side with me. And we work faster because then when we have questions, we just plow through them right nice. there, uh, live in real time. Right, right. Mm -hmm. No, I can see that being yeah. a really effective way, both to mm -hmm. teach and to you know deepen the level of research that mm -hmm. you're doing with your students. Right. Mm -hmm. So I saw your amazing website, and mm -hmm. really am grateful for the work that you've done with the MSU domains and trying to thinking oh, yeah. intentionally about your online scholarship. That was presence. Dan Trago helping that? me set that up. That's good, right. Good. Well, one of the things we talk about on, on this podcast is our online digital presence and, mm -hmm. and actually that's how we sort of try to identify faculty to, to talk to is mm -hmm. uh, faculty who have given some thought to 
being public with their work. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about sort of how you've been thinking about that with your own online scholarly presence. Oh, yeah. My website is not just to showcase me, but to showcase my students yeah. and the work that they do. So I try to write a little bit about my advisees and the work that they're doing. They each get a little blurb once they graduate, and I keep in touch with them regularly. Um, and that's kind of a, a nice domain on the website is uh, seeing those students and what their profiles are and what they've been doing. Also, there's a lot of video in our field now, video abstracts and um, video about our data collection practices and mm -hmm. photos. So it's a nice place where I can store all of that too. Yeah. And I find it generates some site to our some um, access to our web to our work when. Um, People email me out of the blue. It's often that they stumbled upon the website and are asking questions. I get reporters calling mm -hmm. about the U.S. citizenship test. I get high school superintendents calling asking about the third grade reading law that's coming up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, professional website is key. And now we have started um, asking all of our graduate students to create their own professional websites. Right and we showcase their websites on our programs page. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. I, I, that aspect and, and what you began with are, are both so important, this idea that we're using our web presence to amplify the presence of our graduate students, of our colleagues, and thinking in, in very generous uh, terms around how we can create community using these digital modes of, of engagement. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's so important. And it's also really interesting that now we're dealing with multimedia modes of presentation. So you have videos, you have people taking videos of, of conferences or talks right. or panels, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as well as other kinds of things. Yep, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can link to social media posts and also any uh, national or local news that picks up on our research yeah. and link to it through the page. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. one of the ways that I accessed your work was through your page and looking at the Michigan radio piece that you had where you did an interview about the third grade reading yeah. um, mm -hmm. law that's coming in. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and sort of your research more generally. Sure, sure. So we started getting concerned, my graduate students and I, in my language testing class, about the upcoming read by grade three law in the state of Michigan when they were first talking about it a few years ago. Um, we went to the Michigan TESOL conference, mm. so that's the Michigan teachers of English to speakers of other languages, and there's a lot of K through 12 English language learner teachers who go to that conference. And they were, of course, quite concerned. Um, so the law is coming out of a theory that by grade three, if children are not proficient in reading, they are set up for academic failure, mm -hmm. fourth grade and on, because there's a switch, they say, at grade three, of changing from learning to read to reading to learn. Mm -hmm. So it sounds very similar to other hypotheses we have in language learning theories, yeah. that there's some triggers, there's some turning point. Uh, the theory itself is debated. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of research pros and cons on both sides of that theory. So this theory that by th grade three you, you must be proficient or you're set up for failure is one theory, but another theory is that children read to learn and learn to read all throughout K through 12. Yeah. And it's a natural progression and it's not a sharp divide right. at some age-related right. or grade-related. Magical third grade moment. Right. You know? But yeah. nonetheless, no matter <laughs> what the theory is, the law has been adopted okay. as policy in the state. And not just Michigan, it's 16 states plus the District of Columbia who have what we call copycat law, uh, mm -hmm. laws, right. where the um, lobbyists 
advocate for certain language to set up state laws because it's very difficult to get the federal government to right. mandate any education policy. So instead, it's state by state. Mm -hmm. So Michigan um, had it signed into law in 2016, and it will be effective this coming spring. So what it means, though, um, is that all children, regardless of their background characteristics or status, um, have to be proficient in reading or they will be slated to automatically uh, repeat third grade. Mm -hmm. So it's a very large social experiment yeah. in the state of Michigan and being applied broadly even to children who I'm most concerned about are the English language learners mm -hmm. in the state of Michigan um, because they are expected to fail on the third grade reading test. That is the definition of an English language learner a student who is unable to succeed in regular academic standardized tests because they have, um, they are still learners of the language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so we know in SLA theory that children who are learning to read a second language usually take five to seven years to catch up with their native speaking peers. Right. And then there's a bilingual advantage that is kicking in all along that they actually accelerate in their skills later. Mm -hmm. So where most children will go up in reading in a horizontal way, kind of gradually going up, um, ELLs may lag behind their peers for a certain amount of time while they are building their English language skills and reading skills at the same time. But then the bilingual advantage takes off and they, they often come up ahead. Right. Right. So this law and the theory that it's based on don't take ELLs into consideration, nor does it take into consideration their normal trajectories and reading paths. Right. So fortunately, though, the Michigan Department of Education collects data on ELLs children, mm -hmm. so we can borrow that data as researchers and map the trajectories of children on real data to see how many children are actually going to be slated for retention. Um, so we can take the 2020 law and apply it to 2017 data mm -hmm. and see if the, law, if the law is applied in this way, what will the effect be? So we can have real time looking outcomes so we can see what we're doing before we actually do it. Right, right. So, and what is it, what is it showing? I mean, and these are, these are students who really are bilingual, although their, their English is lagging slightly behind their native English-speaking speaking peers. Right. They can be. Yeah, a lot of the children are immigrants and refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, we first looked at how many different native languages are we looking at uh -huh. in the state of Michigan. There's 131 okay. uh, approximately because right. the 131st category is all languages that they can't identify. Uh -huh. um, so there's at least 131 different languages. Um, and we borrowed test data from... Um, about 100,000 third grade children okay. from the 2017 database. And we, of those, about uh, 10,000 of them are English language learners. Okay. So we applied the law to their test data and we find that about 71% of the English language learners in the state of Michigan will be slated for retention. Hmm. But then when we apply the state allowed exemptions, mm -hmm. um, when we pick out the children from the database who have the English language learners who have had less than three years of English language instruction, or if they've uh, been in a special education program, those children can apply for exemptions through their parents. The parents have to write a letter to the superintendent mm -hmm. to request the exemption that they are allowed to have. If we apply that, 
It depends on where the Michigan Department of Education puts the cut point. Mm -hmm. They could put it in various places on the scale, um, but we find anywhere from 20 to 40% of wow. English language learners being held back. Wow. But that's concentrated in areas where there are more ELLs. Mm -hmm. So there are certain districts and schools where most of the population of ELLs will be slated for retention. Mm. And, and you've been working with superintendents in those districts and talking to them and, and advocating and sort of educating them on the, the dimensions of this issue? Yes, because they have the power to basically veto it yeah. or apply the exemptions or allow the exemptions to be applied. So um, in our talkings with the researchers and staff members at the Michigan Department of Education in Lansing, um, the consolidation is, well, the superintendents have all power. Mm. So they could say, no ELLs in my district will be uh, retained. We'll let them all advance. I, I'm, we're not sure how it's going to work yet because um, you could do simulations and try and see, but you never know um, ahead of time how the superintendents will work. Right. Have you been engaged with the legislature on this? And the, we have. Yeah, okay. So we've teamed up with some researchers at the University of Michigan mm -hmm. who are also concerned about this law. Um, and we have visited with local senators here in the Lansing area. And we have presented our data, yeah. and we're so proud of you know what we were able to do, um, borrowing Michigan Department of Education state state data, um, and to to you know map out all the different scenarios, right. um, which we think show catastrophic <laughs> outcomes potentially. Yeah. But what the state senators have said to us is, can you give us qualitative stories? Mm. You know, they, mm -hmm. they said numbers are not your friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People don't respond to numbers as well as they might respond to individual stories. Right, right. So this coming semester in my language testing class, where we've been working with numbers and gathering data through the Michigan Department of Education in Lansing, now we're starting to interview families mm, who will right. be affected by this. Um, even in my neighborhood, I have um, neighbors with third graders who are quite concerned about this issue. Yeah. Because everything we know about language is it's learned in a social atmosphere. Right. So when you're with, when you're a child learning language in school, you're not just learning from your teacher. You're learning from your friends on the right. recess um, playground. You're learning from the cafeteria, the table that you, the, of people that you sit with. And by third grade, those friendship structures and social structures for children, the teams that they play with, are pretty well cemented. Mm -hmm. They really have their own little lives. If you talk to a third grader, they're all oh. about their friends and what right. they're doing. So we know this about language, that language is socially construed and developed. Yeah. What happens when you divorce children from their social group abruptly right. uh, and maybe without their willingness to do so? Because there's a bit of a stigma attached to grade retention. Mm -hmm. And it can be uh, detrimental to children's mental health. Right. So that part of it is also very concerning that I think our qualitative researchers, um, those who do interviews and focus mm -hmm. groups and um, even surveys and picture drawings with the children to see the impact of this law on them as it plays out this coming spring yeah. if the law is enacted. I think it's really important that you're bringing multiple modes of understanding this to bear on the on the question because mm -hmm. you know as you think about the theory of it, as the theory gets applied, 
you know, recognizing, first of all, that this is one theory among others right. mm -hmm. that uh, are trying to describe what's happening in, in the growth mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. And then this idea that, yeah, the numbers are important in terms of giving us a depth of understanding and the scope of understanding how many students this actually are, right. is going to impact. Mm -hmm. But then the real transformative moments are around individuals and right. com mm -hmm. concrete narratives that tell the compelling story that people can understand it because you can't understand, you can, you say 10,000 and when you actually think about 10,000 students, each right. of whom is mm -hmm. a member of a family in a community, in a, in a grade with friends at the lunch table, it's yep. very hard to, mm -hmm. to move from 10,000 to the person. Right. And normally third graders in the state of Michigan, there are about three to 500 students a year that are retained mm. uh, for what we call natural reasons. You know, we don't right. know why they're retained. So when we look at different cut points, we can say, dear state legislative body, <laughs> mm. how many people are you okay with? Right. You know, in that question, we feel that we can confidently answer if anyone yeah. asks because yeah. we have the data. Great. That's great. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and thinking about the common ground of people want students to be successful. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what all of these right. initiatives mm -hmm. are, are about and what does that look like and what does that mean. Mm -hmm. so, so this is one aspect of your research where you have right. other dimensions. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little yeah. bit about other Yeah, so this projects. is one project yeah. that we're working on. <laughs> that's good. We have two other big projects, or I have two other big projects this semester that I've been working on. I've been working with the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C., uh, and we are providing suggestions and recommendations to the Foreign Service Institute on how to improve its proficiency testing for future in-service in consulate and embassy workers around mm. the world. And the other project that I'm working on is a um, national security education program grant project where we are taking data that we collected here at Michigan State University in the foreign language programs mm and publishing the data in a public repository so that researchers and teachers and language program directors can download proficiency test data to see, on average, how do students in various foreign language pro um, programs perform at various points in the college language programs. That's great. That's that's so in line with the kind of public mission of the university, yeah. bringing the data mm -hmm. out and allowing other researchers to, mm -hmm. to access it, to, to bring and share knowledge more broadly. Yeah, and that's a fun project because the Modern Language Association, way back in 2007, recommended that language programs should know where their students are in terms of proficiency mm. because there's a national need for people who can speak foreign languages. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on since 1991 when the, when the Iron Curtain fell. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the United States needed to open embassies and consulates behind the Iron Curtain. Right. So in countries like Poland, Albania, Bulgaria, they needed to fill those positions very quickly with government workers. And there was no one they could find to wow. take those posts who had language skills in Bulgarian, Albanian, Hungarian. Yeah. So in 1991, that's when they opened the National Security Education Program. And in 2002, after 9-11, the efforts got pushed again mm. by the federal government because of the lack of speakers of Arabic mm -hmm. in the country, which mm -hmm. was revealed after the 9 -11, September 11th attacks. Um, so our project is related to those yeah. issues. So the National Security Education Program, which opened in 1991, funded the f flagship programs to promote the study of Arabic and um, other critical languages in 2002. They said, well, 
let's just get a measure of where learners are in foreign language programs in U.S. college campuses. And MSU was one of the three um, programs that was selected. Great. So we did a testing with about 9,000 students mm. here on campus. Mm -hmm. And what was unique with our data is we also collected um, background information on their K through 12 foreign language learning experiences okay. to kind of unite the impact of mainly high school learning, and what that means for foreign language programs here mm. at MSU and mm -hmm. um, nationally. So the results have been interesting. We find, of course, as one would expect, the more high school or K through 12, let's say, Spanish language learning experience you have, once you get here to MSU, you are more likely to reach the advanced levels mm -hmm. of proficiency. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the advanced language literature courses, they are mainly populated with students who took the language in high school. Yeah. So that pipeline is really important yeah. to us. Yeah, very. So we need to think about how can we recruit them, how mm -hmm. can we retain, retain them, and how can we help the high schools in the state continue to offer the rich foreign language right. programs that they have. Yeah, so important. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things your comments are bringing to light is the connection between foreign language knowledge and security, yes. questions of security. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, but from my perspective, the, this sort of capacity for more people to uh, be able to imagine their way into other cultures and other, other worldviews is really an important part of how we're going to uh, be yeah. um, th able to thrive in an interconnected global world right. at mm -hmm. a time mm -hmm. when there is a lot of pressure to to you know focus on English and mm -hmm. on um, and and not to not to do foreign languages and that's really a short-sighted thing. Yeah, we've been looking at that too, you know. But one of the things that we've been finding is that our students at MSU, the number of majors in foreign languages is going down. Yeah. The number of minors and secondary majors and dual majors yeah. is astronomically is. high. Yep. Yeah, we're feeling that in the college. And that, yes. actually, that's a really mm. exciting opportunity for us as we think about how are we weaving language learning into mm -hmm. the curriculum more broadly at the university. Right. Mm -hmm. And we can do that in more dynamic ways potentially than right. just saying, mm -hmm. okay, it's either be a major or nothing. Yeah, we are not just graduating economics and agriculture majors. We are graduating many of them with Spanish minors. Yes. So that added value, we've got ballet students who are also taking Russian. Right. So we have such diversity, and that's the strength of MSU, is students are in applied programs and STEM programs, but also picking up the rich humanities background that puts them ahead of other candidates. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this work. What, what brought you into studying these questions and into all of this? Yeah, I've always liked foreign languages, okay. and I've always liked small classes. Okay. So when I was in high school, I took French rather than Spanish, because uh -huh. it was a small class. And I've always been compelled to do things in service sectors. So when I was in high school, I became a page at the Iowa Senate. Mm -hmm. And there, um, because I knew French, I kind of got tapped into being a tour guide of the Capitol building oh, really? <laughs> to French visitors. And nice. that was just a lot of fun, <laughs> very much as a 17-year-old you know, kid, an ego booster. Yeah. And, um, I continued to study French, so I was a French major in college, okay. and I double majored, you might be yeah. happy to hear, in French and philosophy. Very nice. Yeah, um, which was a nice thing to do because in philosophy, I, I took a lot of courses on mathematical logic. Okay. And that was a great way to kind of organize my brain. Yeah. Um, 
And then when I was finished with my MA, I went to Germany for a few years um, to work as a nanny. And okay. I went to university in Germany just because oh. I liked living abroad. Okay. So not um, in France. You went I to did Germany. a junior okay. year abroad in France. Okay. So, but while I was in France, everyone thought I was German with uh -huh. my last name. So I had all these German friends who said, no, you should come to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do that. So I was a bit of a free spirit um, for a few years. Uh, then I got my degree in theoretical linguistics at the University of Minnesota, okay. where I worked in the German department teaching German and writing test items for their German proficiency test. Huh. So that's where I got involved in assessment. Yeah. And theoretical linguistics was great. Um, they didn't have an applied program there. But when I was finishing up, my advisor said, you know, you should go into language assessment as a specialization. Mm -hmm. Um, so I moved to Washington, D.C., and I worked for four years at the Center for Applied Linguistics, okay. where we did work on national test development for the U.S. Department of Education. Hmm. So I worked on Russian and Arabic proficiency tests. And then I got a Ph.D. at Georgetown University and uh, then came to MSU. All right. So uh, it's been it's been fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you're really working on that very interesting intersection of language learning and and policy, political, you know, policy making, yeah. and mm -hmm. that's such an important part of, yeah. of our and, world. Yeah, and I keep weaving in and out of government um, yeah. in different ways. I was a Peace Corps volunteer to mm. China in between, um, and working um, in the Fulbright in Budapest and upcoming in Germany that those programs are all about spreading cultural and uh, language knowledge. Yeah. And that has been a, a key part of my thinking as well, is expanding opportunities internationally. Yeah, that's, that's so exciting. Well, there's, there's so much opportunity for us here at MSU, and I think across uh, the country, as you think about participatory research, mm -hmm. that involves a deep understanding of language and culture as a way of bringing communities into the research mm -hmm. endeavor, engaging people in local communities abroad mm -hmm. in the really the framing of the research questions and the co-generation of knowledge. And as we move into a more participatory way of thinking about research, yeah. the language side is going to be so important to that. We need to cultivate that across the faculty and, right. and build structures mm -hmm. with uh, other colleges to help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, with education, mm -hmm. family studies, health yep. and humanities. Yeah, yep. mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you kind of uh, uh, about what's, what's holding you back. What, mm. what, are, what are some things that are holding you back? Hmm. Well, I can look at that like on the national level. I think one of the things that holds the field of applied linguistics back, or what, you know, I always have to take a step back and explain something in my work, is that there's a general lack of perhaps statistical and math knowledge in the general population in the United mm. States. Dare I say that? But I think there is. Um, and sometimes understanding learning trends as it relates to all different background factors um, is, is difficult to communicate. Yeah. So that is something that we see in work with like the U.S. citizenship test or with educational policy writ large. Um, there was just a report out today that the eighth grade um, NAEP assessment is showing that eighth graders across the nation, the nation's report card, the reading test scores are down for eighth graders. Mm. And there's a lot of speculation about why is that, our schools are failing, um, the teachers are not teaching reading. But when you take a step back and look at the data on a national level, um, 
reports are showing that actually it's a tie to an after effect of economic downturn. Mm -hmm. That test scores often are moved in mass with the economy. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to not have reactionary views to education and the trends that are seen and to make sure you get all the pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. So as an applied linguist, uh, applied scientist in, in applied linguistics, mm -hmm. I'm always looking to solve problems, language-related ones, and especially ones related to language testing. So a lot of the basic knowledge that we have about how testing works, how large-scale numbers work in testing, um, that's something that we're constantly and always explaining. But finding a way to do that that's polite, mm -hmm. <laughs> respectful, right. um, that's always the challenge, but maybe a fun one, too. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes back to the, the conversations you were having with the legislators about how do you have these messages in ways that resonate. Yes. And mm -hmm. also, I think the, 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 the questions that you're asking, the problems that you're, you've identified are complicated. They're it's, extremely, they're entwined with socio-cultural, yeah. economic beliefs, um, Oh, political, yeah. you name it. There's a little bit of everything in there. Right, mm -hmm. right. And these, you know, attempts at solutions are often very one-dimensional or, or two-dimensional mm -hmm. and then and then understanding the impact of, of those, you know, approaches. And, and we don't have a great opportunities in terms of public deliberation and public discourse mm -hmm. to reflect in um, sophisticated ways about it so that right. we can, you know, hold on to the nuance and deal with the the gray area that mm -hmm. I mean people are moving so quickly to well it's this way or it's that way when right. in fact we know the complexity is so rich that yes. you have to sit with the ambiguity. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. As you think about your own, and one of the things I like to ask about is, you know, your practices of self-reflection. So I think for, for me, self-reflection is such an important part of how, uh, of, of what allows me to sort of enter into the world and, and as a dean, as a, as a colleague, as a scholar, as a dad, as a mm -hmm. husband. So do you, do you have regular practices of self-reflection that you do? I mean, you mentioned you ride your bikes. So mm -hmm. Maybe that's a moment of it. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> on a daily level. When I ride my bike, yeah. well, my bike commute is so short. It's well, right. But, you're um, going to ride around the stadium a few times. I run. So okay. I go running oftentimes on campus yeah. through the beautiful foliage uh, yeah. on campus. And I do reflect a lot at that time. And I'm always reflecting on how can I, as a scholar, make an impact and do work that's valuable um, and, and impactful that could actually help people. Mm -hmm. And that's where... I feel like at Michigan State we've been given the tools to do that. Um, so whether I am, you know, writing papers on some of the concerns about the United States civics test as mm -hmm. part of the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services process of naturalization, I feel like I can make an impact there if I can just help people understand even what the issues are. Right. Um, and I'm satisfied with that type of work. Even if people counter and say, um, you know, MSU should not be funding this type of research. I have social media attacks that yeah. come back. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you see that and you're like, well, that's okay. I can take these knocks yeah. because I have tenure. Yeah. And yeah. that space to do that, we need people who will stand up yeah. and look at issues from all sides. And I think that's the most important thing we can do as professors is to use our tenure 
to be able to say things that we know others will be critical of. Right. That's right. what we're supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, the work that you do in those reflective moments of sort of reminding yourself, coming back mm -hmm. to yourself about mm -hmm. what you're valuing, why right. Right. you're doing mm -hmm. what you're doing, and also grounding yourself in yes. that mm -hmm. so that when the, mm -hmm. the social media post comes or the critique comes, you are not in a reactionary mode. You sort of right. still right. remain grounded and, and a real clear understanding of what you're trying to and do. And that grounding is really important in applied linguistics because um, I want to make sure that the work we're doing is also current, yeah. that it has to be beneficial to graduate students mm -hmm. as well as they're working and you know going to soon be on the job market. What are the trends in the field that will help them get their jobs? What work on data will help them use their skills that they're learning here in their courses? Um, and give them publications that they can use that will beef up their resumes and get them ready. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this last question is really about how I can help you. How, I, how can I, as the dean, help you be successful? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I hadn't thought of that at the time. <laughs> um, continue to give us space. I mean, mm. when I think about it, over the years, I started at MSU in 2005. I've mm -hmm. seen some major improvements in my work. And one of them was actually just the physical space of my office. Mm. Here we are in my office. Right. But I used to have a different office that was difficult to work in. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been really fortunate to be given space to work. So I think that's probably important for yeah. everyone. I don't know how much power you have <laughs> to <laughs> wave magic wands. Space is always a difficult one, but yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, you know, I think it, it, it's one of those things that when we are able to articulate the priorities of the college and, mm -hmm. the, and the language is generally, you know, the SLS program is mm -hmm. uh, world-renowned, rightly so. Yeah. Um, we, we are committed to making sure we mm -hmm. provide the resources yeah. for, you know, leading-edge mm -hmm. scholarship. Right. And that also means labs. That mm -hmm. means the ability for students to have spaces to gather, for right. faculty mm -hmm. and students to feel um, empowered to do their best work together. So it's both the physical space in terms of buildings, but mm -hmm. it's also the psychological space right. to be able to risk things that, that might mm -hmm. be unpopular, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to say things that are a little bit maybe more difficult for, right. Right. For, for some people to hear, and to figuring out what is the space that we need, the conditions under mm -hmm. which we need to do our best and most meaningful work. Right, right. And yeah, so there's a space, but there's also the intellectual back and forth yeah. of working with graduate students. Right. So I find that my graduate students are incredibly helpful in looking at things in different ways. Yeah. There's that generational gap which actually is helpful in looking at problems and solutions in ways that maybe I wouldn't think of. So we can marry a history of knowledge of theory and former application with these bright shining stars, these very eager individuals yeah. who want to attack the problems and together we can put things together that are really powerful. So I think that continued pipeline of uh, excellent students is, is what we need as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we need to continue to bring resources to bear on recruiting and retaining the best, the best graduate students. And I'm mm -hmm. really grateful for the intentional way you're thinking both about your online presence as a way of nurturing and advancing the success of 
uh, graduate students, mm -hmm. empowering them also to speak in their own voice online and in person. Right. And then here, mm -hmm. I feel like here at, at this small round table mm -hmm. um, where you work with the students in, in a very um, direct way, in a way that is both deepening your work, but your, the work that, that you're doing with them together. Mm -hmm. It's so important and so meaningful, so I'm really grateful yeah. for, you, for your work here in the college, for your work with the students, and for your time today. Oh, well, thank you. It was a lot of fun, and I always like to talk about my research, so anytime. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you very much. Mm -hmm. A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoyne, and our interns, Dante Smith and Anya Dillon. You can access every episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast online at go.cal.msu.edu forward slash podcast. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect official entities of Michigan State University. See you next time on Liberal Arts Endeavor.